At this time, I will ask you to open up to Exodus chapter 21, and I will be reading selections from Exodus 21.1 through 22.27. This is a bit of a an unusual approach that I'm taking this morning, but I'm wanting to give a very broad overview of this section of the book of Exodus that we are now entering into. And so I will read from various verses from Exodus 21.1 through 22.27, and then we will go to the New Testament very briefly and read James 1.27. Exodus 21.1 Now these are the rules that you shall set before them, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. 21.12 Whoever strikes a man so that he die shall be put to death. 21.18 When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and then the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. 21.28 When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. 21.33 When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. 22.10 If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. 22.16 If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Exodus 22 verse 21 You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with, with, um, with you who is poor... You shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear 
for I am compassionate. I will read now only James 1.27, which says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. We have come now to what is probably the most neglected portion of the book of Exodus. Uh, the narrative of Exodus 1-18 through 18 is well known. It is much loved. The story contained there concerning the birth and deliverance of Moses, his forsaking of Egypt, his encounter with God in the burning bush, his commission, the ten plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, and God's leading of Israel into the wilderness is, is truly epic. It's a marvelous story. It's well known. It's much loved. Chapters 19 and 20 are also well known and much loved. There God appears to Israel at Sinai and begins to enter into a covenant with them. He appears to them in a most awesome and glorious way. He speaks His moral law to them with a thunderous voice. The people tremble, they fear, they stand afar off and beg that no further word be spoken to them, requesting that Moses mediate between them and God. Chapters 19 and 20, again I say, are well known. They are much loved. Chapters 21 through 24, which, which we are just now beginning to study, they go together with chapters 19 and 20. We must remember that. All together, Exodus chapters 19 through 24 tell us about the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. A covenant is being made here in Exodus chapters 19 through 24. The covenant was introduced or proposed in chapter 19. In chapter 20, God spoke His moral law from Sinai with His own voice. This moral law served as the foundation for all other laws in this covenant. But in Exodus 20, 22 through 23, 19, God gives more laws to Israel to govern them as a society. These laws are about worship and they are about civil affairs. Finally, the covenant is confirmed in Exodus chapter 24. So I'll admit that this portion of Exodus is not nearly as exciting as the story which precedes it, at least not on the surface, at least not to most. It's rather exciting to me, if I were to be totally honest with you. And not only is this portion of Scripture less exciting to most, it also seems very foreign to those of us living so long after the old Mosaic Covenant has passed away, having been fulfilled by Christ. I read to you a selection of verses uh, from Exodus uh, chapters 21 and following. And I think you would agree with me that some of what is said there seems foreign to us. It seems strange to us. And it is somewhat understandable that this section of the book of Exodus is neglected by those who live now, not under the Old Covenant, but under the New. Notice I said somewhat. Also, I said understandable, not acceptable. In a moment, I will tell you why we ought to pay very careful attention to these civil and ceremonial laws given to Old Covenant Israel. But for now, I wish to acknowledge that there is a sense that these laws, which we have just read, are not for us. There is a sense in which these laws, which we have just read, are not for us. These laws were given to Old Covenant Israel to govern them as a nation. Old Covenant Israel was not a common nation but a holy nation. 
There are some civil laws that God gave to Israel which were unique to them, therefore, and should not be adopted by common nations like ours. Sabbath breakers were to be put to death in Old Covenant Israel. So too were idolaters and false prophets. And here I am simply saying that this law code, along with its punishments, was given by God through Moses to Israel to govern them as a nation under the Old Covenant. It would be wrong to assume that God's intention was for the civil laws of Israel, along with their civil penalties, to be adopted without alteration by other nations. That would be a wrong assumption to make. Nowhere does the text say this. Nowhere is this suggested in the Scriptures. In fact, the context in which these laws were given to Israel makes it quite clear that these laws were given to govern them as God's special people. Israel is here entering into a special covenantal relationship with Yahweh. No other nation on earth before or after could claim this. Did you hear that, brothers and sisters? No other nation on earth before this or after this could make this claim. Israel alone was brought into a special and covenantal relationship with Yahweh as a nation. Uh, They were unique in this regard. So as I have said, these civil laws were given by God through Moses to Israel to govern them under the Old Covenant. Just as we are not obligated to obey the laws given to Israel pertaining to worship at altars, 20, 22-26 of Exodus, the observance of festival days, you can see 23, 10-19 about this, or worship at the tabernacle through the priesthood, we will come to instructions about this in chapters 25-30, Neither are we obligated to take these civil laws and apply them with exact strictness in the common nations in which we now live. This would be a grave mistake. And I belabor this point just a little bit because there is a movement known as theonomy which is currently gaining popularity amongst the Reformed which makes this error. We must avoid it, brothers and sisters. It is a misinterpretation of Scripture and it is contrary to our confession of faith. You may see the Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 19, for more on that. Now at this point, some may wonder how it is that we can claim that God's moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is still binding upon us, whereas these civil and ceremonial laws are not. Do you remember our consideration of the Ten Commandments? What did I say to you, brothers and sisters? These laws are still for us. God's moral law is summarily comprehended in these Ten Commandments. Yes, there were some things said that were unique to Old Covenant Israel there in Exodus chapter 20, but these moral laws are for us. I made a big stink of that, in fact, applying these moral laws to us. These are for us today. They still are binding upon us. By this law, God's moral law, all people will be judged at the end of time. This is our standard for for morality even still. But now, I have all of a sudden said to you, these laws, there is a sense, in which they are not for us. Well, how can we make this distinction? How can we divide between these two things? In in truth, many arguments can be made for the permanence of the moral laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments and the abrogation or taking away of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. But the strongest of these arguments comes from our consideration of the New Testament and the way in which Christ and His apostles spoke concerning the laws of Moses. What am I saying here? If we read the New Testament carefully and we ask the question, how did Christ handle the law of Moses? What distinctions did He make? How did His apostles handle the law of Moses? What distinctions did they make? Uh, That is the best way for us to, 
to rightly handle the law of Moses ourselves, to pay attention to how they handled them. But here I wish to draw your attention once more to the distinction that is made in the book of Exodus itself between the Ten Commandments and the rest of the laws given to Israel through Moses. There is a distinction found even within the book of Exodus itself. Notice that God spoke the Ten Commandments with His own voice. That is unique. God spoke the Ten Commandments to Israel with His own voice. He revealed them first. And later in Exodus, we will learn that He wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger on tablets of stone to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. So notice how special these Ten Commandments were treated. Here God's moral law is summarily comprehended. This moral law is unchanging. It is for all people. God revealed this moral law in a very special way. Speaking it with His own voice. Speaking it first. Writing it with His own finger on two tablets to be kept perpetually by the people of Israel in the Ark of the Testimony. But now we see that these other laws which we are beginning to consider were revealed in a different way. They were added later. They were revealed through Moses the mediator. This does not make them less inspired. This does not make them less important. But it does make a distinction for us. God's moral law is most fundamental. It is everlasting, unchanging, universally binding. And to this moral law, to this foundation, God added ceremonial laws to govern Israel's worship and civil laws to govern them as a people. Do you understand how this works here? We must see these distinctions within the law of Moses. Within the law of Moses, we find the moral law. And to the moral law, God did add, through Moses the mediator, civil laws and ceremonial laws to govern them as a people and to govern their worship. So there is a good reason why when we read the Ten Commandments, they seem so familiar to us. When you read the Ten Commandments, they seem familiar to you, do they not? We kind of intuitively know these laws still stand. This is still true. It is true for us. It is true for all people in all times and all places. Thou shalt not murder doesn't change, you see. Thou shalt not commit adultery doesn't change from nation to nation or from time to time. These are perpetually binding laws. They seem familiar to us and for good reason. But also, we must admit that when we read the ceremonial and civil, civil laws that follow, they seem foreign. These civil and ceremonial laws that were given to Israel to govern them under the Old Covenant are foreign to us in some ways. The culture of Israel and of the surrounding nations is foreign to us. Their special covenantal relationship with God is foreign to us. So please hear me. It would be a terrible mistake to ignore the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant, you see. It would be a terrible mistake to ignore them, but it would also be a terrible mistake to take them and to assume that they are for us in the same way that they were for Old Covenant Israel. So I want to avoid both errors, brothers and sisters. These laws, the civil and ceremonial laws, were in some ways unique to Old Covenant Israel, and they, were, they are not for us. But again, I say to you, they are for us in that we must pay careful attention to them, for there is so much for us to learn from them concerning matters of morality, matters of justice, and even our salvation in Christ Jesus. For this reason, we are not going to skip over 
or rush through this portion of Scripture, but we will come back to it next week and move rather slowly through the laws of Exodus 20, 21 through 23, 19. Today, I'm giving you a broad overview of this entire section. I think that's helpful. I think that's needed. And then next Sunday, we will come right back to Exodus 20, 21, and we are going to move slowly through these civil laws which were given to Old Covenant Israel. Are they for us? Must we take them as they are and say, these should be the laws of our nation? Answer, no. Should we ignore them, though, and brush them to the side as New Covenant Christians? No. There is so much for us to learn concerning matters of morality, justice, and again I say, even our salvation in Christ Jesus. In this sermon today, I would like to provide you with an overview of this portion of Exodus. And I think the best way to do this is to draw your attention to the structure of Exodus 21.1 through 23.19. I think knowing something about the structure of this large section will help us to better understand the individual parts as we come to them. You're all thinking to yourself, I know what kind of sermon this is going to be. (laughs) Yes, you do. Um, This is the kind of sermon uh, that is not often or always preached, but it's the kind of sermon that I get really excited about. You can ask my wife. She heard all about it over the last week. We're going to look at the structure of Exodus 21.1 through 23.19. As you read this portion of Scripture, you can sense that there is a structure to it, But it is not immediately apparent what that structure is, at least not for me. You're reading this section of Scripture and you say, I I know there's an order here. This this is not just a a random collection of civil laws just sort of pieced together. You you can sense that there is a, a structure to this section, but it is not immediately apparent what that structure is. I did find David Dorsey's book, The Literary Structure of the Old Testament, to be helpful here. He shows that Exodus 21 2 through 23.19 is divided into two large sections. Stay with me here, please. Firstly, we find case laws in Exodus 21.2 through 22.27. I read a selection of these case laws at the introduction of this sermon. In case law... Examples of legal cases are given which then serve as a precedent for future legal decisions. Case laws say, here is what you are to do in this situation, and then it is up to judges or governors and kings to apply the principles in the one case to others as they arise. That's how case law works. Of course, this requires wisdom. Case laws are typically presented with the language of if, then, or when. And if you were to look over Exodus 21.2 through 23.27, you would find a lot of this kind of language, if, then, or when. Secondly, we find imperatival laws in 22.28 through 23.19. Imperatival laws are stated with imperatives or commands. Imperatival laws are stated with words like this, you shall, or you shall not. And if you look at 22 to 28 and following, you do see the language of you shall and you shall not. There is that imperatival formula. So this whole section, Exodus 21.1 through 23.19, is broken into two large sections. First, case laws, and then imperatival laws. 
The first, the first section here, which contains case laws, is highly structured. And we will find that the second section containing imperatival laws is highly structured too. And I'd like to show you the structure of each, not to fill your minds with useless information, brothers and sisters, but one, to help you have a clear understanding of this portion of Scripture, and two, so that you might see where the emphasis is placed in these laws which God gave to Israel. Please hear me about this. Literary structure of the kind that I am about to show you, is often used to bring clarity to a passage and also to place emphasis on some things over others. We're going to find that to be true in these two sections of Scripture here. The structure of the passages place emphasis on certain things. Again, I say both of these sections containing case laws and imperatival laws are structured, and they are structured chiastically. This means... That in each section, the first part mirrors the last, the second part mirrors the second to last, the third part mirrors the third to last, and so on. And if you were to diagram this out on a piece of paper, you would see that everything leads to a central point and the descends back down again from there in a symmetrical way. It creates the shape of a V laid down on its side. Everything comes to a point and then descends back down. Uh, as the passage uh, progresses. Again, I say both of these large sections are structured in a chiastic way. Consider now the literary structure of the case laws of Exodus 21.2 through 22.27. First of all, we have laws pertaining to the kindness that is to be shown to servants in verses 2 through 11 of Exodus 21. Next, we have laws pertaining to capital offenses, that is to say, uh, offenses that deserve the death penalty in 12, verses 12 through 17. Next, we have non-capital bodily assaults requiring restitution presented to us in 21, 18 through 27. After that, we have laws pertaining to death or injury of a person by an animal in 21, 28 through 32. After that, we have laws pertaining to the loss of property due to an accident in 21, 33 through 36. We've come now to the point, you notice, of the chiastic structure. Mirrored there with the loss of property due to an accident, we have loss of property due to theft in 22, 1 through 9. And then descending back down the way, we have laws pertaining to death, injury, or a loss of animal by a person in 22.10-15. through 15. Then non-capital bodily offense. You see the, the parallel structure here corresponding to the first portion of this section. Specifically, this is about the seduction of a virgin in 22.16-17. through 17. Then again, we come back to laws pertaining to capital offenses. The phrase, shall be put to death, is predominant there in 22. 18 through 20. And then lastly, we return all the way back to this idea that kindness is to be shown to the weak within the nation of Israel, to aliens, to widows, to orphans, to the poor, 22, 21 through 27. Now we could probably spend a great deal of time analyzing this structure, and I want to make only a few remarks about it for the sake of time. Notice one, This section containing case laws is divided into ten parts. This matches the Ten Commandments. 
And I think we are to see that these civil case laws are rooted in God's moral law. Two, in his book on the literary structure of the Old Testament, Dorsey notes that when a passage is structured in a symmetrical or chiastic way and consists of an even number of parts, like this one does, then the emphasis tends to be placed not in the middle or the peak of the chiasm, but at the beginning and the end of the symmetrical pattern. This makes sense, doesn't it? If you notice the shape of this chiasm, uh, we see that when the symmetrical pattern consists of an odd number of parts, the whole, thing's, the whole thing uh, comes to a sharp point, A, B, C, B, A. But in these chiasms with an odd number of parts, the emphasis is often placed on what is said in the mid, not, not in the middle, uh, but, excuse me, I read that wrong. In these chiasms with an odd number of parts, the emphasis is often placed upon what is said in the middle. Everything comes to a point. But where there are an even number of parts, the passage does not really come to a point or a peak, but is blunted. Notice how in this passage, E and E prime, they share the middle together. There's not a sharp point in the middle, but the the middle portion is blunted. And indeed, when we consider the content of this section, we find that the emphasis is placed at the beginning and at the end of the chiasm. Notice how things move from most serious crimes punishable by death to less serious matters, the loss of property due to accident or theft. In points B through E, things move from that which is more serious to that which is less serious, and then from less serious back down to the most serious, that is, sins punishable by death in Israel. In parts B, E through E prime back down to B. Three, and this is the thing that I really wanted to show you, this even-numbered, chiastic structure of Exodus 21.2 through 22.27, which places the emphasis or stress at the beginning and end, starts by demanding that kindness be shown to servants and ends by demanding that kindness be shown to aliens, widows, orphans, and the poor. Capital offenses are not dealt with first. Capital offenses are not dealt with last. The emphasis is indeed placed at the beginning and end of this chiastic structure. But capital offenses are not the first and the last thing to be mentioned. What are the first and last things to be mentioned as these civil laws are presented to Israel from God through Moses? The very first thing that is said to them is, Do not oppress the needy and the weak among you. Show kindness to your servants. And do not neglect those who are in vulnerable positions amongst you. Do not not neglect or exploit the orphan, the widow, the poor amongst you, but be sure to, to care for them. This might sound strange to you, but I tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, this brought tears to my eyes when I saw it. As I'm sitting in in my study, preparing for this sermon and paying attention to the structure that is here present within the civil laws given to to Old Covenant Israel, as I'm seeing where the stress is placed, this brought tears to my eyes to consider this. The thing that God was most concerned about as He gave Israel their civil laws was that the people of Israel would care for the weak in their midst. That they would not exploit the weak and the vulnerable, but would be careful to meet their needs and to see 
to see to the betterment of their position uh, within, within life. The first set of civil laws which God gave to Israel as a nation begin and end with this infinite emphasis. You must care for the weak and the vulnerable amongst you. Treat them justly. Do not oppress them, but seek their well-being. Remember that you were slaves and sojourners in Egypt. Do not oppress or mistreat the slaves and the sojourners who dwell in the midst of you, therefore. Laws concerning the just and kind treatment of slaves, aliens, widows, and orphans, along with the poor, are mentioned first, and they are mentioned last. They are stressed. They are emphasized by the pattern that is present within this text as things move from most serious to least and then back down again from least to most serious. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we must pay careful attention to this. If our societies are to be just, if they are to be righteous before God, the weak and the vulnerable amongst us must not be exploited. We must care for them. We must seek their prosperity. We must treat them justly, you see. You know, I wrote this sermon over a week ago. And since then, we have heard word that Roe versus Wade has been overturned in this land. And I think that is the thing that brought tears to my eyes the most. This thought that in this land, our, jo- our laws are so unjust that innocent children in the womb are even put to death based upon the preference of the mother or the father. It has been a great injustice that has plagued this land for so long, and it still does. Roe versus Wade being overturned is a great victory. We should rejoice in it. But the battle has just begun to reverse this awful thing that has been done in our land for so long, the taking of innocent, the innocent lives of infants in the, in the womb. Uh, brothers and sisters, if our society, be, society is to be just, if it is to be morally upright, we must not oppress the weak and the vulnerable. We must protect them. God's law, which He gave to Old Covenant Israel, placed the stress on this very thing. As I have said, the imperatival laws of Exodus 22:28-23:19 are also structured as a chiasm. This section is made up of seven parts, so it is an odd number, not an even number. And so we will find that the emphasis is placed in this section, not at the beginning and end, but in the middle. Everything comes to a point here in Exodus 22:28 through 23:19. Uh, quickly notice that 22:28 through 30 has laws pertaining to our responsibilities to God, or Old Covenant Israel's responsibilities to God. In 2231, there are laws about not eating meat torn by wild animals. In other words, do not scrounge for food, Israel. God will provide for you as His holy people. In the third portion of this chiastic structure, uh, there, is, there are laws pertaining to justice being upheld. Favoritism is not to be shown to the poor in a lawsuit. An interesting emphasis here. Favoritism is not to be shown to the poor in a lawsuit. That is 23, 1 through 3. And here is the very center of this chiasm. Kindness is even to be shown to personal enemies. 23, 4 through 5. Kindness is even to be shown to personal enemies. In other words, society is not to function this way. Because you have an enemy, you are therefore justified in doing wrong to them. 
That is not to be the case, was not to be the case in Old Covenant Israel. And of course, we can learn from this principle too in our society. Kindness is to be shown even to personal enemies. We descend down back towards the backside of the catechism here. Again, there is an emphasis upon justice in 23, 6-19, especially for the poor. Then we have laws that forbid eating the Sabbath year produce. Again, the message is similar. It is to be left for the animals. The people are to rest. God will provide. Trust in God's provision, Israel. And then we come back to the end, uh, which corresponds to the beginning, which has laws concerning responsibilities to God in 23.13-19. through Israel was to give to God tribute from crops and herds. They were to have no other gods before Him. So please allow me to say just a few words about the structure of this section before concluding this admittedly odd sermon with some suggestions for application. One, this section follows the pattern of the Ten Commandments, moving from laws pertaining to the worship and honoring of God to the honoring of our fellow man, you will notice. First, responsibilities to God, and then responsibilities to fellow man. I think you can see it. We are to love God. We are to honor Him with produce, with children, with flocks. We are to trust to Him trust Him to provide uh, as we keep His commandments. And how will our love for God be manifest except in our love for neighbor? We are to uphold justice for both the rich and the poor. We are to show no partiality. Yes, we are even to do what is right to those we consider an enemy within society. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him, says Exodus 23, verse 4. Two, I have said that stress is placed here not on the responsibilities we have before God, but on the love we are to show to our fellow man, yes, even our personal enemies. And by the way, I do not mean that love for man is to have priority over love for God. No, instead what I mean is that in this section of Scripture, which is about the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel, stress is placed upon the proper and just treatment of others within society. So the question might be asked of you, do you love God? And I hope that the answer is yes. Then you must fulfill your obligations to Him, and you must also love your neighbor by doing what is just and right, no matter if they are high or low, friend or foe. That is where the laws the imperatival laws of Exodus 22:28 through 23:19 take us. Three, taken together, these two sections, the case laws and the imperatival laws, do away with every excuse that men and women may give for the unjust treatment of another human being. Some might say, well, I can oppress them because they are weak and I am strong. Or, I can act unjustly against them because I am poor and they are rich. You know people do reason in this way, don't they? I can, I can act unjustly from, to, towards them. I can steal from them because I am poor and they are rich. Or I am permitted to do him wrong because he is my enemy. When God began to give Israel her civil laws, He said no to all of this. He stressed that the weak and the vulnerable in society are to be honored not exploited, that justice is to be upheld always for the rich man and the poor man, and that we are to do what is right and good before God, even towards those we consider to be our personal enemies. Again, I will admit that this was a bit of an unusual sermon, and that I've dealt with such a large portion of Scripture in a very general way, 
Please do know, brothers and sisters, that we will return to Exodus 21 and look a bit more carefully at verses 1 through 11 next Sunday, Lord willing. But I do hope that you've benefited from this overview of the section of Scripture that is before us. And having considered the whole, I do hope that we will be in a better position to consider the parts as we come to them. And more than this, I hope that you have been struck by the emphasis that is placed upon the obligation that we have to care for the poor and vulnerable within our midst and to uphold justice within the societies in which we live. The civil laws that God gave to Israel demanded this. And I am saying that all nations have an obligation to do the same. Should all nations take these laws exactly as they are and adopt them as their own? I say no. These laws were for Old Covenant Israel. But may all nations take these laws and learn from them concerning matters of morality and justice? We say yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Here we see that the, God, the laws that God gave to Old Covenant Israel were most pure. They were holy. They were righteous. They were just. We can learn a great deal from them even today. Certainly we have this obligation to protect the vulnerable, to cease all forms of exploitation, and to uphold justice always in the societies in which we live. So how in particular are we to apply this portion of Holy Scripture to our own lives today? I'll make suggestions for application under two headings. First, politically. Second, personally. Politically. First, brothers and sisters, let us seek to apply the truths of Holy Scripture politically. That is to say, within the context of our own society. Some of you may be thinking to yourselves, did he forget what he said earlier about these laws being for Israel, not for us, and his strong opposition to the theonomists who wish to take these laws and apply them in exhaustive detail in our nation today. I say, no, I have not forgotten about that. But it is very important for us to remember that this law code was given to Old Covenant Israel and not to any other nation on earth. It is also important for us to consider the just and morally upright laws that were given to Israel so that we might formulate and uphold just and morally upright laws in our own nation. Laws that are fitting to our particular circumstances and our status before God as a common and not a holy nation. Great care must be taken as we contemplate these things. One, we should remember that in Old Covenant Israel, church and state were united together by the command of God in a way that is not true of any other nation on earth. This is why external violations of the first table of the moral law were considered to be civil crimes punishable by death in Old Covenant Israel. Sabbath breakers, false prophets, and idolaters were to be put to death there. We ought not to seek to impose these laws in this common nation or any other where church and state, elder and emperor, are given distinct spheres of responsibility and jurisdiction by God. Two, some of the laws given to Old Covenant Israel were given to them to govern the realities of the world in which they lived. In the ancient world, for example, slavery or servitude was a reality. We'll come to talk about this in detail next Sunday, Lord willing. Here I am simply saying that the existence of laws regulating slavery in Old Covenant Israel does not mean that slavery ought to be instituted in our society. Now these laws regulated slavery, which was 
very much different from the form of slavery that existed in this country not long ago, by the way, to ensure that it would be just for the betterment of the poor and to forbid all forms of abuse and exploitation. Why did God give these laws regulating slavery to Old Covenant Israel? Not to say that slavery ought to exist, but to regulate it so as to be sure that it was just in Old Covenant Israel. Now, that is something that we must see. The laws given to Old Covenant Israel were given to them to govern the realities of the world in which they lived. Three, though we must take great care to see the uniqueness of Old Covenant Israel and her laws, we must also be careful to observe those moral and just principles contained within Israel's law so that we might grow in moral maturity ourselves and be useful in the societies in which we live as we seek to promote justice peace and prosperity among all men. I wonder if you can make this connection. If we read the Ten Commandments, we see God's moral laws presented to us. They say things to us like, honor your father and your mother. And what did we learn about this moral law? What does it require of us? What does it forbid? God's moral law, honor your father and mother, requires us to show proper honor to all people, no matter what their position is. We're to show honor to them, given their particular position within our lives and within society. What do the civil laws of Israel then do except take that moral principle and expound upon them and apply the moral principle even to the proper treatment of slaves and to the proper treatment of orphans and widows and the poor, you see. The moral law is at the core of these civil laws. And as we consider the the civil laws themselves, we gain more understanding of what God's moral law is, you see. As God's moral law is fleshed out and applied for Old Covenant Israel, we, we learn more about what it means to be morally upright individually, what it means to be morally upright as a society. And so we must pay careful attention to the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel. They are not binding on us, but they are of great use to us. For in the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel, we see the holiness, wisdom, justice, and goodness of God put on display. Where did these civil laws come from, brothers and sisters? The laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel came from God. His holiness, wisdom, justice, and goodness is put on display. This law code was for Old Covenant Israel only. Not even modern-day Israel should seek to implement it in exhaustive detail. You understand this? Modern-day Israel is not Old Covenant Israel. There's a difference. If you're still unclear about that, let's talk. Modern-day Israel is not Old Covenant Israel. The Old Covenant is gone. You understand? It has been fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant is gone. The laws have been fulfilled by Christ. They have been taken away, the moral law only, Remains, But we can learn a great deal from these civil and even the ceremonial laws of Old Covenant Israel. Yes, the nations of the earth may also consider God's moral law as revealed in nature when seeking to establish and uphold just laws as their own. All can see plainly that there is a God who is to be worshipped, And that men should do unto others as they would have others do unto them. Where is this law? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Where is that law revealed? In Scripture, yes. But you can see it in nature too. 
All you have to do is to look at an oppressor in the eyes and say, would you want to be treated that way if you were weak and not strong? Would you want someone stronger than you to treat you in that way? To oppress you if they had the upper hand? Certainly they would say no. And you could say to them, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That law, that law is revealed in nature. And yes, nations, as they seek to establish their own laws, can look to the law of nature and as they seek to build and establish judicial systems of their own. But nations should also be encouraged to look to the scriptures, brothers and sisters. For here we see God's moral law most clearly revealed. And in the civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel, we have examples of, of, of great morality and, and justice put on display for us. I'm not saying that they should take them unaltered as their own, but we can learn a great deal from the civil laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel. Now, I highly doubt that any of our politicians will ever hear my voice. But you are listening, brothers and sisters. And here is the challenge that I would give to you. Learn to think biblically, carefully, and critically about matters of morality and justice and the political issues that we face in our day and age. Learn to think carefully and critically about matters of morality and justice and the political issues that we face today. I wish our politicians would do it. I wish they would consider carefully the law of nature. I wish they would consider carefully God's moral law as revealed in the Ten Commandments. I even wish they would open up the Holy Scriptures and study the civil laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel to learn about what justice looks like in a society. I wish they would. I doubt they'll ever hear my voice, but you can hear my voice. And so I would challenge you to do this because you are a part of society. You interact with your neighbors, don't you? And you treat them in a certain way. You vote, do you not? And so we must develop moral maturity, brothers and sisters. I think it is especially important for Christians in this country today to break free from the partisan politics of left against right, Democrat versus Republican. I think it is crucial for us to do this. Yes, at the end of the day, we will likely be presented with one of these two options in the voting booth. And yes, the Republican Party does tend to stand for so-called Judeo-Christian values more than those who have a D by their name. That is my opinion. But really, this is a rather shallow way of looking at things. In my estimation, there is plenty of blame to go around, brothers and sisters. Neither of these parties is even close to perfect. I think there is great corruption, there is great injustice, there is great impurity in our political system. We ought to square with that reality. Both parties fall short of God's standard. And so I am saying to you, I am encouraging you to unplug from the partisan politics enough, unplug from the propaganda and become students of Holy Scripture as it pertains to matters of justice so that you might better pray for this nation and if the Lord has called you to it, work for the betterment of the society and the political realm. Certainly it will help us as we go into the voting booth. Brothers and sisters, unplug from the partisan politics and think critically about what is going on around us. Use Holy Scripture to help you in this task. God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, but even the civil laws which were given to Old Covenant Israel can help us in this regard. For here we see what just laws look like in a society. You know, I will admit that I feel a sense of frustration 
regarding the moral and political state of this nation. Evil is all around us, and it feels as if the closer you look, the more evil you see. There is so much corruption, so much injustice. The government has grown so big, so distant, and our laws so complex that it feels as if very little can be done by the common citizen to bring about any real and lasting change. Do you feel this way? I think that you do. But two things comfort me. The first far more than the second. One, I serve a God who is sovereign over all, who is working all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. He is establishing an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Through faith in Jesus Christ the Lord, I am a citizen of that kingdom now, and I await the consummation of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever happens here, no matter how good or how bad things get, All of that will not change, for God is faithful. He will surely accomplish all He has determined to accomplish. And I trust that you have that same comfort, that same confidence. Two, I do also take some comfort in the fact that I can, by the grace of God, control what I think, say, and do. And I do have some ability to impact those around me, perhaps even in our local community. And as it pertains to the betterment of society, the upholding of morality, and the pursuit of justice, this is where we must aim, brothers and sisters. Not at the globalists, not at the elites in Washington, not even at the technocrats. I think they are so far beyond our range. We must focus our attention on those people and on those institutions that are right in front of us. And so I implore you, brothers and sisters, To focus on what is right before you. Don't be so consumed with what is far off. Those things that you cannot really touch or affect. And if all the Christians in this nation and this world would do this thing, it would have a tremendous impact. I feel as if we are often consumed about things distant from us. And then we neglect to pour our energies into what is right before us. But it is here that we have the power to affect change in society. By doing what God has called us to do here. Husbands, love and lead your wives. Do this. Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What if generations of Christians would do this thing faithfully? To raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them to church to hear the word of God preached. Bring them to the second service to hear the Christian faith proclaimed. Catechize them in the home. Teach them what is moral, what is right, what is just teach them these things so that they then go out and make an impact in generations to come. This is where lasting change will be brought about if we care at all for the societies in which we live. We must focus our attention here. Fellow citizens, I say to you, love your neighbors as yourself. Do good to all, especially to those who believe. Yes, be aware of what is going on in the world around you. Do not be naive, but then focus your love and attention on what is right before you and within your reach. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So that is all some suggestions for political application. Personally, personally, I say this. Brothers and sisters, we should love and contemplate God's law. All of it. All of it. We should love and contemplate God's law, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. And I am afraid that God's law has been neglected by many within the church today. But our opinion should be that of King David, 
who loved God's law deeply and cried out to God, saying things like this, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Have you ever read Psalm 119? It's a marvelous contemplation of God's law. Yes, it is true, David was under the law in a way that we are not. He was obligated to keep the civil and ceremonial. He was functioning as the king of Israel. But we too should love God's law and fix our eyes upon them, not to be saved by the keeping of the law, for salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, but so that we might grow in maturity, in wisdom, and in obedience. Secondly, as we consider the civil laws which God gave to Israel, we must be careful to treat others in a way that is good, right, and just, even if those in our society do not. There's a great deal for us to learn from the civil laws given to Israel. Yes, we should long to see our society embrace God's moral law and to enact and enforce laws that are just, but even if our society does not, we do have an opportunity to treat others in a way that is good, in a way that is honorable, in a way that is just. And I trust that as we do, we will shine as lights in the darkness more brightly. And the gospel we proclaim will be adorned with beauty as men and women observe our good deeds. Thirdly, do be especially mindful of the weak and vulnerable in our society and in our midst so that we might be careful to protect them, to provide for them so, so far as we are able. As I have demonstrated Concern for the oppressed and vulnerable was emphasized when God gave Israel her laws. And I want you to listen again now to Exodus 22, 21 through 27. And with this we close. Here is what God said to Israel. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, And they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate, says the Lord. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord looks out for the needy, for the weak, for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless. Our God is a compassionate God. And we, as his people, are to be a compassionate people. May the Lord enable us to be kind and compassionate as He is. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank You for the law of Moses. We do admit that some parts of it seem to be very foreign to us, hard to understand. But do give us understanding, O Lord. Help us as we consider the civil and ceremonial laws given to Old Covenant Israel that we would would see that the moral core to the civil laws, that we would see the way in which Christ is held forth and prefigured in the ceremonial laws, even in the civil too. Lord, help us to study the law of God, the, the, the law of Moses, with great care. Do increase our maturity, O Lord, in matters of morality 
Above all, we pray that you would increase our faith in Christ, that we would see him as the Messiah, the one who came to atone for sins. He kept the law for us. He died for us. He rose for us. In him, there is the hope of life everlasting. May we see Christ vividly portrayed in this law which you gave to Old Covenant Israel. May we believe in him and cling to him ever more tightly. In the name of Christ we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.